All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith on a day when we got a great show for you as we continue to focus on the story of our lives, the COVID-19 pandemic. The show packed once again today. First up, Health Minister Adrian Dix, he's standing by. We'll talk about the latest numbers on infections and hospitalizations. The search for more protective equipment for our frontline healthcare workers. Adrian Dix, first up in a moment here. Keith Baldry at the bottom of the hour will break down the latest news on the pandemic. At 10 a.m., we'll go live to London, England for an update on UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, now in intensive care and hospital as he battles the virus. Also on the show today, we'll talk about BC students facing a disrupted learning, no summer jobs, graduates facing a recession or worse. All that and more on the show today. But first, we start with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister, thanks for taking the time. Of course. Good to talk to you, Mike. I I appreciate it a lot. Uh, Yesterday, you announced 63 new cases of COVID-19. That was a two-day total after your previous update on on Saturday. So I've I've seen days when we've had more than that in one day, never mind two days. So is this encouraging to you, or are we we flattening the curve here? Uh, I think uh, Dr. Henry said yesterday there's some signs that we're flattening the curve. It's not just the issue of confirmed cases, but the number of people in hospital uh, that went down uh, over the weekend, uh, albeit slightly. So those are those are all good news. But what they tell us is that we have to keep doing what we're doing and um, have, uh, especially in the coming uh, weeks, uh, 100% compliance that what everybody's doing who's listening to you is having some positive effect. But we've also seen... Um, over over time, what can happen with this virus? We had the first person pass away in his 40s uh, yesterday. We had, uh, or on the weekend on Sunday, I believe we had. Uh, we have 149 cases, 149 at two care homes in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region. So uh, we have to be, I think, humble about uh, the successes we have, and we've got to just keep working, all of us. Do you have any concerns that people might let their guard down? Like we see these encouraging numbers. We saw out of New York City some encouraging signs. We see in Wuhan, China, they're starting to open up again. Do you, are you concerned that maybe people start to see these signs and go, okay, I can lower my guard here a little bit? Well, what I'm hearing from people is uh, they see these signs and they understand that what they are doing is working and that they have agency, they have power in this. What they do matters in this, not just what Dr. Bonnie Henry does or other people do, but what they do matters. And so I'm I'm hopeful that the signs that some of these are having some impact um, will uh, will have a positive effect and people will want to, uh, to use a gambling term, double down or give even more. You mentioned that extraordinary number of cases uh, confined to two care homes in Vancouver. Can you expand a little bit on that and what's going on in those two care homes and, and the sort of the regimen that's been put in place there? Well, what it shows, first of all, because um, I believe 26 people have died in those two care homes, is how vulnerable people are in care. We talk about, and we've talked about on the show, the fact that over 80, there's a mortality rate of about 14% in international studies with COVID-19. But if you're over 80 and have uh, other conditions, it's obviously higher than that. So the actions that have been taken, some very strong actions have been taken and very difficult ones in sort of limiting access to visitors. That's a very difficult one. If you know anyone who in care, you know that that is uh, that's a life-affecting uh, change that the heavy testing we've done of healthcare workers is reflected in the results. And I think in some cases where we've had um, one case for a number of weeks, of a staff person. That's a positive sign that our outbreak protocols are working. But this is a very challenging situation, and I think everything about COVID-19 tells us to be humble, to be modest, and that we all have to take the actions we need to take every day. And sometimes, you know, we also get it wrong, and we got to be prepared to change and, uh, and uh, adapt. You announced one additional death yesterday, as you mentioned, and this is the second death in the general community, like outside of a long-term care home, a man in his 40s, as you mentioned. What more can you tell us about that death? This is is a man who died at home, and does it indicate that people should realize that this virus can affect people who are younger, like this guy was in his 40s? Absolutely. What we know is that it affects most people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and indeed all but two of our 
uh, people who've died in BC of the 39 who passed away have been in that circumstance. But it still affects everyone, particularly, and I'm not saying anything about the details of this case, but particularly if you have um, uh, chronic health conditions, uh, conditions such as diabetes, such as a drug and alcohol condition, uh, or illness, other other illnesses that affect you in society can affect how you respond to this. But there are people in their 40s who have died all over the world. There was a young person in their 20s who passed away in Alberta uh, this past week. So what it tells us is, well, it has the biggest effect on the elderly. Uh, it can affect all of us, and uh, we have to absolutely learn from all of these, every single case, if we're going to make sure we're doing our best possible job in helping everyone. Dr. Bonnie Henry wrote a an op-ed here in the last couple of days about the the, the demand by, in some quarters for fuller disclosure on where cases are located. Like I, I appreciate you guys have been issuing numbers on a regional basis for the health authorities in the province, but why doesn't the province release information about where more specific locations are loaded by municipality, for example, or in Ontario, they release detailed information by county uh, of where individual cases are, are located. How come we're not doing that in BC? Two sets of things. One that's to our advantage. In Ontario, they have a very decentralized healthcare system. So that's a little bit what they do. They don't have, as we do, just five regional health authorities. They have uh, many different authorities. So that leads to more information, but maybe uh, some challenges in the system as well, right? So we're listening. We provide the information by health authorities. When there's relevant information for the safety of the public, it's released. So in the case of all the outbreaks we have in the care homes, the outbreak we have at a nursery uh, near Kelowna, the outbreak we have in correctional facilities, all that information is provided. When there's relevant information, we're we're aggressively contacting people so that they know and learn about it from health authorities first. The majority of our cases, the majority now, are resolved, meaning people got sick, they either went into hospital or they didn't, and their, and their condition has resolved, usually at home and usually in isolation. And if people are in isolation at home, they're no danger to their neighbors or anyone else. And so what we've wanted from the beginning is for people to come forward, for people to say, to say that there isn't stigma for people, because the worst possible thing is for people not to contact the healthcare system. And so everything we're doing, uh, which is to provide transparency when people need to know and to ensure people's privacy uh, about being sick when that helps as well, uh, is based on decisions of public health. Okay, speaking to Health Minister Adrian Dix, let's talk about uh, Canadians returning to Canada, whether they're snowbirds or spring breakers or people, just the hundreds of thousands of Canadians around the world who, who want to come home. You've expressed a number of times your concerns there about people coming home, potentially infected and spreading the virus in in the community. Can you talk a little bit about the the quarantine measures that are in place federally? And are you, are you satisfied with the federal efforts to, to quarantine people when they get back to Canada? Well, first of all, everybody, and regardless of what governments do, it's every single person's obligation if they've been outside of Canada not to go to the grocery store on their way home from the airport or from their way home from a border crossing, but to go straight home and to self-isolate. And we know that's very challenging, but everyone has that responsibility, and that's not just the government has the responsibility. I, th I think we can do better. Uh, March 26th, the federal government announced the, they're bringing into force the Quarantine Act. But um, if people are coming into the country and uh, and not getting enough information at airports and not not having a plan, because it's difficult to self-isolate. People in your audience know this. It is difficult to self-isolate. There's some practical challenges for lots of people. So what we have to do, I think, is uh, have uh, firmer controls at the airport. And what we have to do is have, and at, at border crossings, and which are, are federal, of course, what we need at the provincial level is information about who's coming and where they are. And finally, I think, I think um, we need to, everybody to have not just the, a promise to self-isolate, but a plan to self-isolate, because the promise is not as strong as actually having a plan. And we need that. And if, if required, if people can't follow a plan, we have to have the capacity, I think, to ensure this by having access to quarantine for a group of people. And that's the case we've been making, and we're working with the federal government on these questions, and I think they're listening to us, so I'm, no, I'm positive that we'll get a better result. All right. You want the feds to be tougher, like to, to put people into, like, 
Trudeau yesterday mentioned that maybe people would be directed to facilities, as he put it, if, when they get back to Canada. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, I think when you think back to one of the things that happened, it seems like forever ago, like when yeah. that plane, those planes came from Wuhan and people were quarantined at Trenton. And even the, the, the cruise ship that was off the coast of California, um, they were brought, I think, to Trenton or to Cornwall. And in that case, a number of them, even though the only ones that came were asymptomatic at the time, became uh, sick with COVID-19. Um, those actions were, I think, we're proud of the federal government. They dealt with them. They brought people home, and they ensured that they were safe when they got home. And my only point to everybody is that the this is a Herculean task. The prime minister said it's a Herculean task to bring people home, and I agree with them, and I'm proud our government's doing it. But uh, the Herculean task doesn't end at the airport, doesn't end at the border, doesn't end when people get off the cruise ship. It has to go on for 14 days beyond it. They have right. to self-isolate when they come home. And we need that. We need to have to help people to self-isolate where required. If they're not able to do it, we need to help them to be uh, isolated. And uh, we need them all to have a plan and to agree to a right. plan. We've got a couple of minutes left here with Health Minister Adrian Dix. Let's briefly talk about personal protective equipment and your government's effort to source more of it. You mentioned yesterday about getting more masks, more ventilators. Where are you getting this stuff, and how difficult is it to source it? It's difficult. It's um, I think someone referred to it as the Wild West right now, um, because uh, notwithstanding the whole debate about 3M and the U.S. market, it's been difficult to get things out of the United States, given the seriousness of the pandemic uh, in that country. Obviously, we're looking around the world, including in places such as China, to access the materials we need. But uh, many of our traditional suppliers have been disrupted, so we are very aggressively pursuing um, sources of supply everywhere, as is the federal government. And so, and they're coming from different places. Some of them are by contribution, and we have a website hub that allows people to contribute into that system. But also, uh, we're pursuing every possible lead here. We have a whole team uh, in the Ministry of Health and in the government that's doing that. And uh, it's a challenge because we need our uh, healthcare workers to have the confidence that that, uh, that PPE, that those protective devices, those masks and other protective equipment is available to them as they uh, deal with this crisis on the ground, on the front line. Minister, thanks for taking the time. Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Health Minister Adrian Dix. We continue the coverage and analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic. Time to check in with Keith Baldry now, Global News Bureau Chief at the Legislature for Baldry's Beat. Hey, Keith. Morning, Smitty. Okay, you came in this morning with a homemade mask yeah. that I understand your wife, Anne, has been making. Yeah, Anne Mullins, my wife. Nice-looking uh, mask. Yeah, it's a very floral design. Uh, yeah, she made 24. Uh, she's a seamstress. She has her own sewing machine, so she knows. Uh, but you can go online. She actually went online. You can Google uh, mask making, and you can find out how to make a, how to make your homemade mask. It's interesting that the advice from the public health officers has shifted a bit. From yeah. the beginning, it was, uh, these don't really uh, work. They don't really do much good. And it is true, uh, make no mistake, masks do not offer you protection from contracting COVID-19. But there is now evidence that it prevents you from transmitting the virus. And you may be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and unknowingly infecting people. And now you've got a mask and it's, uh, it, it will give you great uh, protect, not so much you protection, but other people protection from, uh, from uh, you transmitting the virus. Okay, put the mask on here for a sec. I'm going to take a quick got, picture of you. On, so I'm gonna... Okay, I'm taking a picture of Keith now with the mask and... Uh, the palatial studio here in the uh okay we are so social I just, distancing though everybody in that photo yeah. we're eight feet apart no we're social distancing follow me on twitter i will tweet that out that photo out in a moment mike smith I'll news on twitter that. yeah that's great <laughs> <laughs> mike smith news on twitter smith spelled with a y s-m-y-t-h mike smith news on twitter and i'll post the photo of keith with his uh, mask on do you wear this thing when you go outside now when you go down to the supermarket do you put it on or i, I have uh, a couple times um probably do more in the in the in the future i've noticed more and more people doing it more and more people do, doing it it's but keep in mind it is not a replacement for social distancing you have to maintain your physical distance from people even if you're wearing a mask and one my wife pointed wife and pointed out actually when you wear a mask people go ooh you must be ill with something so i'm staying yeah. away from you so it actually yeah. increases the chance that's uh, actually a good thing 
That's a good thing. And I think one of the hesitations from Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, Teresa Tam, the federal chief uh, uh, public health officer, about uh, uh, acknowledging that a mask could be uh, worn, is that it may have been, uh, the, the fear was that it was going to lead people into a sense of complacency, that, oh, if I wear a mask, I don't really have to worry about anything else. That's not the case. You wear a mask to prevent you from transmitting the virus to other people, but you still must maintain your physical distance and you must continually wash your hands. So other measures have to be followed. In fact, they're more important than wearing a mask. Do you think they should do this one-way thing in the supermarkets? This yeah. is an idea that people have come up with that when you go into the supermarket, you it's kind of like the IKEA. You know when you go into IKEA and yeah. they they snake you through one way so you see everything? Uh, if you did that, if you did like a one-way, up and down each aisle one-way, you wouldn't have people doubling back and... Yeah, so uh, it's thrifty. Is any, story, is any story doing that, like one-way? Yep. Uh, I've noticed uh, people responding to me on Twitter because I uh, pointed out that Thrifty's here in Victoria, which is the big supermarket yeah. chain here, is uh, is Im- implemented one-way aisles. And others have pointed out now other stores are starting to do this as well. Yeah. Uh, Thrifty's is, is also very aggressively, to their credit, really scrubbing down the conveyor belt where you put your goods on. Yeah. Every time there's a, a customer, another another washing comes in. Uh, so they're they're taking the extra step here. And I think you're seeing other stores... Uh, follow suit. And I think this is part of Dr. Bonnie Henry's strategy at the beginning. It wasn't to enforce things on people, but to make people find their own way to get to a certain point. And that's with physical distancing. You're seeing all sorts of physical distancing now. Uh, in fact, when you see people close together, it's almost an anomaly. You just don't see that as much as you, as you did in the past. And the other thing was that you see private businesses now limiting the number of people in their stores or closing down completely on their own volition rather than being forced to uh, through a, a public health order. Let's talk about quarantine measures when people come back to Canada. And I just spoke to Health Minister Adrian Dix about mm-hmm. this. And he said basically he wants to see the federal government do a, a more consistent job in, in making sure that people are quarantined. Do you think that we should have to go to a mandatory quarantine for people returning to Canada? They're doing it in other countries. Mm-hmm. Like in some other countries, you arrive in the country, you don't go to a hotel, you don't go to a Walmart, you don't go home, you go straight to a hotel. And they say, see you in two weeks, mm-hmm. we'll bring you three meals a day, leave them outside your hotel room, and you get out after 14 days. Do you think they should do the same thing here? Well, I think we may be getting to that point, but I think still the public health officers want to see self-policing more than anything. Uh, Bonnie Henry thinks public orders drastically curtailing things is, is a last resort. But if we see evidence that people are not so, uh, self-isolating after the return from international travel, I do think you're going to see... You heard uh, the Prime Minister yesterday refer to institutions and Let's, let's listen to that. Let's listen yeah. to that. This is uh, Trudeau from yesterday. From the very beginning, there was a, a number of measures that we took on uh, returning flights from uh, from Wuhan, for example, on uh, flights coming back from uh, from various cruises uh, where we had mandatory quarantines in centers. Uh, we have uh, facilities available for people who are returning to Canada and for various reasons cannot uh, quarantine themselves at home or home is too far uh, from the airport. Uh, that is why we have uh, institutions in place and those are being used okay there there are certainly a lot of empty hotel rooms out there yeah if the, if the government wanted to mandate some kind of mandatory quarantine a lot of empty hotels are on yvr where these people yeah. are coming back from so yeah, yeah that i think my understanding is that is that is the plan in place but what how much it's being used right now is is uh, unclear but certainly i've talked to adrian dix about this a number of times he is concerned that with, as we talked about last week, Mike, uh, as of last Friday, 390,000 Canadians registered with Global Affairs Canada to come home. Uh, they're not all going into Toronto. There's a lot coming into Vancouver. But again, I think it's it's going to be anecdotal right now whether or not they self-isolate or not. But keep in mind, under the Quarantine Act invoked by the federal government, uh, the federal government will now do spot checks on people. Uh, and that's, that's going on as we speak. And if they catch someone not self-isolating, they're subject to uh, considerable fines. All right, let's talk about some of the numbers that were announced. We got another update coming this afternoon. Yesterday, the government announced 63 new cases of COVID-19. That was a two-day total mm-hmm. from the previous update announced on Saturday. So there was they skipped a day on Sunday, as they typically do. So 63 over two days. Like I've seen days where there were more than 63 in one day. Yeah, no, so these, 63 over two days, I mean... These numbers are stabilizing. It's yeah. uh, it's encouraging. Uh, both uh, Dr. Henry and Adrian Nix think it's uh, relatively stable. Another interesting figure, the number of people in hospital dropped by oh, nine yeah. uh, to 140. ICU cases are up to 72. That's, that's a concern. 
but the overall case numbers are we're, we are bending the curve. But what Dr. Martin Henry's point is, we have to bend it for a long time. It's not just a one week thing. And this week is critical. Uh, this is the week, and uh, that the cases were supposed to escalate considerably. We're not seeing that so far. Uh, and there's encouraging news from uh, you know around the world. So in some ways, New York seems to be uh, not trending down, but certainly seems to be a little more stable than it was. Detroit seems to be suddenly a new hot spot where where the numbers are really ticking upwards. Interesting in Spain, where yeah, it had yeah. been a real problem, and for five days it had been stabilized, and then today suddenly 731 people died. Or, or uh, I think that was the number matching yeah. New York City. So th- this is why we don't know much about this this uh, this virus. We don't have a history with it. We don't know how it's going to act. And the most troubling thing yesterday was the was the news that a forty year old man uh, died at home, and that is very worrisome because that is not an, a person over eighty. Most of the, almost all the deaths have been over eighty, with the exception of that dentist who was sixty. They've been largely in care home, long term care homes, or at home with elderly people. But now we have news that a 40-year-old man died at home, and that's uh, we don't have a lot more information about that. But that hopefully that's an anomaly. But speaking knows? of the lack of information on that, the government when they release these numbers every day, they will break it down by health authority. So mm-hmm. there's five of them around the province. So this case of this community death of a man in his 40s who died at home, we're told that was in the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, and that's it. That could be. That's a, that's a big area. Mm-hmm. Do you think the government should be giving out more specific geographical information of where positive cases are located, like they do in other jurisdictions? Like in Ontario, they'll break it down by county around the entire yeah. province. Do you think they should be breaking it down like by, by municipality or something in BC? Yeah, I don't, I, as we go along, I don't see what the big deal is of, of making more information available on that local basis. Uh, well, I, I guess I guess it would be like if you tell someone that there are no cases in your town. Yeah. Do people in that community then say, well, I can okay. go outside and go to a party? I don't know? think that's one of the concerns of why they're not doing it. I think perhaps, though, when it comes to deaths, I think they should be more specific because they have been specific when it comes to the Lynn Valley Care Home and the Harrow Park Care Home. We know how many people died there. We know how many people are infected there, both in patients and residents. So they singled those two those facilities out for more information than we get for anything else in the entire province. We know more about Lynn, Lynn Valley Care Home and Harrow Park Care Home than we know about any municipality or any jurisdiction. That's the one where we've had the like a lot of deaths and cases, yeah, the, two, uh, the, two, yeah. the two homes. I think there's 170 people between the two. Got my, there's so many numbers flying around right now. I think it's 170 in terms of residents and staff who have tested positive. But they're of the 39 deaths. Dick, Dick's, told me, the Dick's told me 149 cases in two care homes. Okay, 149. Um, and a number of the deaths. That's a lot. It, it is a lot. And most of the of the 39 deaths, I think two-thirds are in those, those 26 people in those two care homes. Yep. Yep. died. And that's a concern. It was flagged right but, but they're telling you where those care homes are. So they're being specific yeah. on those hot spots, right? Then they will disclose. This is where people are getting sick. This is where people are dying in this specific care home. So they'll be specific then. Yeah. Which and is, should, and I think when it comes to deaths, I think they should be more specific uh, over local jurisdictions, local communities. Let's talk about the Canada Emergency Benefit right now. Uh, today is the day if you're born in April, May, or June. Yes. April, yeah. You can apply for the $2,000 a month. Yesterday, we saw they were, they were processing like 1000 a minute. 966000 I almost think. A million. Is, is almost a million yesterday, which is just... I think they may get to... Yeah, one estimate is more than three million. We were talking yesterday one point six million. I think it's double that in terms of people who are going to apply for this thing. It's uh, it's phenomenal. Uh, the web, the um, anecdotally, the website did crash not not crash a couple times, but certainly you got you got uh, you had to go on a few times before you were able to access it. I yeah. suspect it's going to be like that all week. Let me bring you up to date here on what's going on in the UK with uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He is in hospital in the intensive care unit as he deals with his own case of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Johnson had announced uh, several days ago that he had contracted the virus, uh, was doing okay at first, was self-isolating at home, took a turn for the worst on the weekend, and was admitted into hospital. Boris Johnson is receiving standard oxygen treatment, according to UK officials, not on a ventilator, which I think is a critical point to make. Johnson had a comfortable night last night in hospital, according to officials. He is in good spirits. 
not on a ventilator, just to stress that again, although ventilators standing by in intensive care uh, should the Prime Minister need it. In the, me- in the meantime, there is a lot of concern about exactly what his, go- his conditions are. This has shocked the United Kingdom. Also questions about exactly who is in charge over there. You know, the United Kingdom does not really have a, a succession, a formal succession process for to replace a prime minister if someone is sick. But the situation right now is that Johnson has nominated his foreign minister, Dominic Rabb, to deputize him, as he puts it, as necessary. So Dominic Rabb, the foreign minister, pretty much in control right now have a listen to this this is dominic rabb who is the foreign minister of the uk now pretty much in charge reporting to boris johnson in hospital here he is talking about the prime minister there during the course of this afternoon the prime minister's condition worsened and on the advice of the medical team who's moved in to a critical care unit so in light of those circumstances the prime minister asked me as first secretary to deputize for him where necessary in driving forward the government's plans to defeat coronavirus and um, as you'll know, uh, we, he's been receiving excellent care at St Thomas's Hospital. And we'd like to take this opportunity as a government uh, to thank uh, NHS staff up and down the country for all of their dedication, hard work and commitment in treating everyone who's been affected by this awful virus. With the Prime Minister now in intensive care, this is obviously an extremely serious situation. I mean, how, how worried should people be about his health and about who's in charge of the government? Well, the government's business will continue, um, and the Prime Minister is in safe hands with a brilliant team uh, at St Thomas's Hospital, and the focus of the government will continue to be on making sure, at the Prime Minister's direction, all the plans for making sure that we can defeat coronavirus and pull the country through this challenge will be taken forward. Are you confident, though, that the government is in, under control tonight? There's an incredibly strong team spirit behind the Prime Minister and making sure that we get all of the plans that the Prime Minister has instructed us to deliver to get them implemented as soon as possible. And that's the way we will bring the whole country uh, through the coronavirus challenge that we face right now. All right, Dominic Rabb, he's the UK Foreign Minister there. He's been deputised by Prime Minister Boris Johnson there. So effectively leading the government, I guess, at, at this point. But questions about just how sick Boris Johnson is, when he could return to full duties on it as well. Let's go live to London, England right now and check in with Redmond Shannon, the European correspondent for Global News. Redmond, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, no problem. What is the latest there? We're listening to uh, Dominic Rabb there. He sounded a, a little shaky there to me in that clip. I guess under the circumstances, this has obviously shocked the United Kingdom. What is the situation there on the ground right now? Yeah, well, Dominic Rabb uh, just spoke a short time ago again on the, for the Daily Update. Um, so that clip we were listening to there was from, I guess, yesterday, just after yeah. it was uh, it emerged what had happened. Now, this he's since given an update. Um, and uh, we know that the Prime Minister, uh, they say, was st- is stable, um, in good spirits, and uh, breathing unaided, so not needing a ventilator yet, but uh, using oxygen. Uh, Dominic Rabb, as you had mentioned, is the Foreign Secretary here, the Foreign right. Minister, but isn't necessarily the automatic replacement because there isn't a written constitution in the UK um, that uh, deems anyone in particular to take over. And he basically, Boris Johnson, has designated him as the person to chair cabinet meetings, but no decisions can really be made. Uh, unilaterally by anyone in the absence of the Prime Minister. Um, and in fact, even when a Prime Minister is there, you always need a cabinet consensus. And that is what is happening now. So he spoke again, was asked again about how the chain of command, <clears throat> excuse me, works when the Prime Minister is incapacitated or in hospital. Right. And uh, he wasn't uh, very clear. He basically just kept saying that the Prime Minister has given him instructions for how policies should work and what direction they need to go in. And they are united behind those policies and will um, push things in that direction. But of course, if the Prime Minister stays in hospital for a number of days, things may change. As we've seen in Canada, around the world, this story changes day to day. So if the direction is uh, of policy needs to change, 
he wasn't very clear about who would make a decision to change policy, especially if uh, Boris Johnson's condition worsens and he's unable to, to communicate directly with, uh, with the cabinet. Speaking to Redmond Shannon, global European correspondent, about the condition of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson in hospital right now. What what has been the reaction among Britons and and the UK in general to to this situation? I mean, this is just kind of a shocking, a shocking situ- uh, development here with the Prime Minister in the hospital. This is this guy is kind of a a larger than life figure, um, and suddenly now in hospital in ICU. What what has been the general reaction overall to this there? Well, Boris Johnson has um, always been a divisive figure, be it as Mayor of London, Foreign Secretary, and now as Prime Minister, in particular as Prime Minister. Uh, the previous year, Brexit was hugely divisive. God, Brexit now seems so irrelevant and so yeah. small scale compared to what's happening right now. But he was hugely divisive. But I think people on all sides of the political spectrum here are wishing him the best. Um, the leader of the opposition who just uh, arrived as the new leader of the opposition a couple of days ago, Sir Keir Starmer, issued his uh, warm wishes to Boris Johnson and as have people from, from across the political spectrum and around the world, of course, other world leaders. But I think the average person in the, in the UK is as shocked as you can imagine because uh, love him or hate him, he is relatively young at 55. He cycles, he plays tennis, he keeps fit, and it just shows that this virus doesn't really care. Um, this is, uh, is taking younger people um, and making them very ill. Um, we, we know it's more likely to affect older people, but younger people too. And if the Prime Minister, who obviously would have the best healthcare um, that uh, that you can get your hands on, be it uh, within the NHS and supplementary to that, if he can end up in, an, in the intensive care unit, well then anyone can and perhaps it may shock some people into obeying the rules because not everybody in the UK has been obeying the rules with the good spring weather we've seen in London. Uh, the yeah. sun is out, people are out and about over the weekend, people were in parks sunbathing, which is not allowed, only exercise is allowed once a day, so perhaps this might shake people and wake them up to what's really going on okay we you talked briefly about the the line of succession there if the prime minister is incapacitated and that is obviously unclear with the lack of a written constitution there dominic rab kind of stepping in a little fuzzy about what exactly his authority is there what about the the current orders there that are in place you mentioned that the weather is nice there, springtime weather in London and people are outside. What are the current kind of orders that are in place in the UK and is a stricter lockdown of the country possible now? A, a stricter lockdown is possible because at, uh, on Sunday, a cabinet minister said that they everything is being considered, including um, banning outdoor exercise. So people are allowed out in the UK right now for uh, to get food, to get medicine or medical needs to go to a job in an essential service, be that as in healthcare, policing, food delivery, these special essential services. And finally, you're allowed out for exercise once a day. And uh, that is hard to police in the UK because there is no obligation for anyone to carry identity ID with them. You don't have to have your driver's license on you if you're just out and about and show where you live. So police A don't know necessarily who you are and B they don't know where you where you live. So it is a difficult one to police. All police can do is if they see someone sitting down in a park, tell them get up and move and do exercise or go home. So it is being um abused you over the weekend it has been by people just sitting around and outdoors and if that continues the governments have said they're prepared to to crack down further because in paris um just today the government there the city government there announced that running and jogging in the daytime is not allowed anymore so between 10 a.m and 7 p.m you can no longer go out for a run you have to go running outside of those hours because they felt too many people were out and about exercising at the same time and were potentially uh, cross-contaminating um, when they can perhaps brush off each other. So that's possible that 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 could happen here too. Speaking of Redmond Shannon, he is the European correspondent for Global News. Just going back to the current situation and the chain of command in the United Kingdom there right now, with, with the confusion about exactly who is in charge here. So like if Dominic Rabb, if he is chairing cabinet meetings, 
if the government wants to go in a, in a new direction or let's say a stricter lockdown of the country to fight against this virus, does he got to go to the hospital and get the all clear from Boris Johnson to do that? Or what kind of autonomy does the cabinet have here with Johnson in intensive care? Well, that wasn't made clear at the press conference a short time ago by Dominic Raab. But presumably, if Boris Johnson is awake and conscious and, and able to communicate, that that approval can, can be sought. Yeah. But if he deteriorates and needs to be intubated and uh, sedated, then things get very, very uh, muddy and... I'm sure, given the nature of this crisis, that the cabinet, <clears throat> as it meets, will find um, uh, a way of implementing something. But nonetheless, Dominic Raab wasn't very clear as to how that would happen in that scenario today. Yeah. And uh, he has found himself in this position, which you probably didn't imagine he would be in just two weeks ago, and perhaps doesn't have as clear an answer as you would like to hear for someone um in the hot seat right now. Okay, Redmond, last question for you. The, the current condition of Boris Johnson as communicated by officials there is that, he, as, as you mentioned, he is not on a ventilator in hospital. Um, is, the, is, the, is there any kind of prognosis for how this is going to go forward, or is, it, is there any information available on that? No, they haven't said anything about uh, how long they expect him to be in hospital, and that is, I guess, uh, shows that Doctors here see such a variation, in, and doctors everywhere, of course, see such a variation in how different people are reacting to this virus. You see other politicians who here in the UK who um, had to isolate or who showed symptoms of the virus or tested positive, in fact, for the virus. They are now back at their jobs, including the health minister. He's uh, already been back for a number of days, but Boris Johnson uh, was not. So the coming days are going to be difficult to predict and certainly no one is um, able to say whether or not he'll be back um, in his job full time tomorrow or a few days from now but you'd imagine he's going to if anyone who's in intensive care is going to need a few days at least uh, to be in a bed and to be in hospital to recuperate so it could be a few days and hopefully it's it's quite soon for for him and for anyone else in that position. Redmond thank you for coming on. No problem, Mike. Have a good day. Okay, Bye. thank you. Same to you. That is Redmond Shannon. He is the European correspondent for Global News. Live on the line there from London, England, there with an update on UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who remains in intensive care and hospital in London, not on a ventilator at this point, receiving oxygen, but continuing to breathe on his own. All right, welcome back, Mike Smith, as we continue to focus on the story of our lives, the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's check in now with Andrew Wilkinson. He's the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the B.C. legislature. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, do you miss the legislature? It's been shut down for a while now. Well, I miss you, of course. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be a long time until we get back to the legislature because we all know that there's a very important... Uh, item business so we got to defeat this epidemic before we get back to that kind of thing yeah you you mentioned to me last time we talked about the importance of pulling together here with the government and we've seen a lot of like i don't think i've ever seen this kind of cross-partisan cooperation and uh, cabinet ministers and your own liberal mlas kind of tweeting out support to each other and how important is that to you right now to support the emergency efforts of the government and do you have any concerns about how this is being managed so far well, we've got a lot of faith in what Dr. Bonnie Henry's been doing. We're winning this game right now at the end of the first period, thanks to her. And we have said right from the very beginning, since the start of March, that the top priority is defeating the virus, not fighting with each other. There are some yeah. things that are starting to appear in terms of management issues that we think the provincial government's falling down on, starting with education. We can talk about that in a minute. But the priority is to defeat the virus, to continue to follow Dr. Henry's directions, working together to self-isolate and make this virus go away okay dr henry i think she's impressed a lot of people although you know not immune from some questions herself and one of them is should the government be disclosing more information and one of the things that bonnie henry wrote in an op-ed this week was that the they she seems to be reluctant to give specific information about where outbreaks are located like if you get a cluster of covid19 cases in a nursing home for example the government has been very transparent about which nursing homes are affected but what about a breakdown 
of cases by municipality or, or other more specific locations around the province about where positive cases have been identified. Other provinces are doing that. Ontario does a, a much more specific sort of geographical locator on where specific cases are located by county. Do you think BC should be giving more information out to the public in that regard? Well, you've got to ask, what's the upside? We're winning at the end of the first period. You don't question the coach. You follow the coach's advice. And then what would you do with that information? The vast majority of us are still susceptible to this virus. Just look at that Pacific Dental Conference where 15,000 people gathered, and lo and behold, somebody there had the bug on board. Nobody knew it. And everybody goes home and takes the virus with them and spreads it all over Western Canada. So that's the risk you run of saying, oh, if it's in town X, then it's not in town Y, so I'm not going to worry about it. If I'm told, oh, it's in Vancouver, but it's not in Coquitlam, therefore let's all go do our shopping in Coquitlam and go and gather and have a party in Coquitlam. You're just a sitting duck for a repetition of that Pacific Dental Conference and a whole new outbreak. Speaking to Andrew Wilkinson, he's the leader of the Liberal Party. Of course, you're a medical doctor yourself. Um, as you watch this thing unfold and the way it's been managed, as as a sort of a medical professional in your in your past life, what are your what are your perspectives on the way this has been managed? Is there anything you would do differently, or do you think that it's being managed well? Well, we can all have perfect hindsight. I think uh, the uh, behavior of the federal government on our borders was slow, probably about two weeks too slow to get to where they got to. That should have been done better. At the local level, we'll have a lot of time to review what could have been done better or differently. But you got to remember, this is a day-to-day combat with the virus, and so far we're doing well. Let's build on that success and bring this thing home by working together. And I'm a huge fan of everybody in British Columbia looking out for themselves and self-isolating no matter where you are, because that's how we're going to defeat this thing. And then we'll get back to business that much faster. Because if we drag this thing out by fumbling around and making variations and letting people make up their own minds, this is going to go on and on and on until Christmas, at least. So let's stick together, let's work together, and defeat the virus. Okay, speaking of the feds and self-isolation, do you have any worries about Canadians returning to the country? There are hundreds of thousands of Canadians who are registered outside of our borders who are coming back home, a lot of them. We see snowbirds coming home, he's spring breakers coming home, people coming home from all points around the world back to Canada. Do you think there should be stricter quarantine measures in place? Because I get emails every day from people who say, I've heard about someone coming back to YVR on an international flight, and they're not being given enough information when they land. They're not being told to strictly self-isolate and quarantine when they get on the ground. We see, we see other countries doing mandatory quarantine. You get off a plane... You go straight to a hotel, see you in two weeks. We'll bring you three meals a day and leave it outside your hotel door. Do you think Canada should be stricter on on the quarantine measures for people returning to the country? Well, we've got this thing on the pathway to being controlled in British Columbia, and what we don't need is a second wave from it being imported. That's what has happened in other countries where they're very concerned about it. You might have seen in China that the extremely rigid border controls with yes. every flight attendant, every hotel clerk, and every um, airline clerk in full hazmat suits. Right. That's how China's approaching this. And so at a minimum, the government of Canada should be making very, very clear to people with handouts what they have to do on arrival at the Canadian border coming into British Columbia. They've been very slow to do that. Gladly, they seem to have risen to the occasion now. And we've got to take the advice from the public health authorities whether those folks should go straight to a hotel for two weeks, like you say, which is happening in some countries, or whether you can have some arrangement whereby they would go straight home on their own undertaking, because we cannot have this thing come back from it being re-imported by Canadians returning to the country. Let's talk about the school system now. You mentioned that as, as a concern. Of course, we've had this disruption in, in, in the school system Classes shut down for in-person learning. We're supposed to be transitioning to online learning for our kids. I got two kids in the public school system myself, and I don't see them doing a lot of online learning at home yet. What are your concerns there? We've got a big problem in British Columbia, and we want to know where the education minister is. March 23rd, Alberta and Ontario went back to school, and they uh, dressed up their online learning by March the 30th. Mike, that's over a week ago. They were back on full track. Kamloops School Board is doing a good job with online learning. Assignments going out to kids every day, and they're spending the mornings at the 
at the kitchen table getting their schoolwork done. That's working well in Kamloops, but nothing is happening in most school boards around the province. And where is the education minister? Where is the leadership here? We have the union boss on the radio telling us how the world works, but we have no guidance whatsoever from the governor of British Columbia on education. You got well, six hundred thousand kids out of school, and where's the leadership? Well, I I talk I had Rob Fleming, the education minister, on the show last week, who kind of disputed complaints that were behind other provinces and that they're moving forward with online learning. But do you, do you think that? What the strategy of the government appears to be to let the individual school districts control it at the local level, but do you think that the provincial government should be taking a more central sort of leadership role in, in how online learning un- unfolds here? Well, Mike, why do we have a Ministry of Education? Why do we have an education minister to say, oh, it's not my problem? Come on, show some leadership, get out there. The best practice appears to be in Kamloops right now. It's been working for over a week. Get that information out to all the school districts. Deal directly with parents. You might have seen the letter that came out on March 27th. It was just a million-out bunch of excuses from the education ministry. Let's get on with teaching our kids and get them busy so they're not driving their parents crazy and driving themselves nuts. Okay, speaking to Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, let's let's talk a little bit about the economy and the way the government is managing this and trying to keep this economy af- afloat while we get through this nightmare and then looking ahead to a recovery. Do you have any concerns about the state of the BC economy right now, the job loss, and how we can rebound and recover from this once it's over? Well, I think we all know that there are literally millions of people signing on for the federal unemployment program this week. We have a huge problem with unemployment in this country that affects the entire place, and British Columbia is no exception. We've got 150,000 people who left the restaurant business, and they don't have work. We've got hundreds of thousands of people in service industries. Just walk down any main street and see how little activity there is. Because we, what we know is people are going home and they're worried sick about their jobs. And it's not just uh, employees. It's the people who you know run the mom-and-pop operation are self-employed. They've got rent obligations. They've got property tax obligations. And they're looking for some answers from John Horgan. What's happening with their property taxes? Can they defer them? Do they have to pay them? Are they going to get into trouble for it? Are they going to go into receivership because they can't afford to pay their rent? Australia rolled out a program yesterday for commercial rents and how to deal with it. We need the provincial government to come to the table and figure out what's going on to keep our main streets going because we don't want to be here a year from now when half those storefronts are empty with for lease signs on them and the banks and the insurance companies have said, can't help you because we lost a ton of money on, on main street. So the provincial government's going to have to step in here Maybe it means interest-free loans for property taxes. Maybe it means some kind of uh, arbitration, mediation, and leases. But we've got to keep these small businesses going, and that lies squarely in the hands of John Horgan, the provincial government. It's not the federal government's job when well, it comes to this local business. Okay, well, the provincial government, though, has rolled out like billions of dollars here in, in relief and tax deferrals and em- emergency funds and freeze on rents and freeze on evictions. I mean, what more do you want them to do? Well, you and I both talk to people who run barbershops and clothing stores and and little delicatessens. They're terrified they're going to go broke. They may never open again because they got no revenue and they got fixed costs. So they need to hear some pretty comprehensive answers from John Horgan, the provincial government, about how they're still going to be viable by the end of the summer. And it's not clear at all to them. They look on the federal websites and get stuff for employees, and that's fair enough. And they look around and think, I haven't seen anybody talking to me. I haven't seen anybody tell me how my barbershop's going to stay open because i got no revenue for the next six weeks, and I've still got a landlord i got to deal with. And like I say, in Australia yesterday, they ran out a whole program for landlords and tenants to resolve their differences about commercial leases. That's John Horgan's job, and where is he? You know, we've okay. seen him, what, once in the last two weeks? Any student of history would know that false conspiracy theories and political weaponization are sure to accompany any major disease outbreak. To see just how predictably routine today's reactions to COVID-19 are, all we need to do is go back in time, just slightly back, about 700 years, to medieval Europe, as it was just beginning to feel the pangs of the Black Death. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith. That is the voice of Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid.com podcast. Brian is an American writer and producer. 
He focuses on science and skepticism in his Skeptoid podcast, which I highly recommend to you. And the latest issue of his podcast focuses on, yeah, you guessed it, the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of the myths and conspiracy theories that are out there. Man, there are a lot of them. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about some of the uh, the theories out there around COVID-19. And, and like you said, you know, anytime there's kind of a pandemic like this or a disease outbreak, there's uh, sort of myths and as conspiracy theories go along with them, going back through the annals of time, right? Like you mentioned the Black Death there in your intro. What happened during the Black Death? Yeah, the Black Death was uh, another case where a pandemic happens, people worldwide are panicking, and what happens, they start coming up with conspiracy theories about it. And and in that case, in the 1300s, um, it wasn't it wasn't 5G cell phones. It wasn't a, a, a Wuhan weapons bioweapon. It was it was Jews. Um, huh. Jews tended yeah. to be the, uh, the, the 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 villains in every conspiracy theory, um, most of them throughout history. And sure enough, in the Black Death, the idea was that Jews were seen poisoning wells, and that was the cause of the Black Plague. Okay, so here we go with the, the latest pandemic gripping the world's attention, and once again we see the conspiracy theories coming out. So, Brian, this is your specialty. Let's talk about some of them. You mentioned 5G networks. Actually, had I've received some emails about this. I've received some phone calls that somehow the uh, the coronavirus is, is linked to 5G cellular networks. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many different versions of this that... Uh, it's hard to address all of them, but the basic one is that is that COVID nineteen, the disease, is not actually caused by a virus. It's it's really just what's happening because five G cell phone networks are starting to be deployed worldwide now, and there's there's always been some subset of culture who believes anything new or unknown is scary or dangerous. And, um, and and so they point to 5G. Well, 5G must be behind it, whatever's happening. You know, even though we can say definitively from so many different perspectives that this is absolutely not what's happening. Okay. okay. Radio signals are, are thoroughly proven not to have any harm to human bodies. Okay. Debunk that one for me. What What is the definitive clear proof of that? Well, first of all, I mean, we, we, we do know what causes COVID-19. And it's the novel coronavirus. Uh, we, we, we've even we, we've done the genome of the, of the virus. We know a lot about it. We know that that is the cause of, of COVID-19. We know that radio signals, of which 5G is just another frequency band, um, do not pose any harm to, to human tissue. Um, the radio signals cannot interact with the human body until you get above a certain threshold, which is just above visible light, basically where you start to get sunburned. That's where, um, that's where uh, radio signal, electromagnetic radiation, whatever you want to call it, starts to become dangerous. Down below, down, way down, 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 down where cell phone signals are, uh, you know, these, these frequency ranges that are used by 5G have always been used for police radio, fire radio, municipal radio signals, um, and, and of course the sun is a constant source of full-spectrum radio signal from every possible frequency, drenching us all day, every day. You know, humans' ability to put a radio signal on a certain frequency, thats that works great because we can focus in on just that one frequency, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what the sun and the universe are drenching us with all day long. Okay. The idea that one certain new use of that is somehow harmful um, is, 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 is it's it's trivial to disprove, and it's also just simply completely implausible from a biochemical and a physics perspective. Speaking to Brian Dunning from Skeptoid.com, let, let's talk about that other one, Brian, that you mentioned, that, and people may have heard about this, that somehow that the virus may have been cooked up in a bioweapon lab in, in China out of Wuhan. Tell me about that one. Yeah, this was one of the first conspiracy theories to, to arise. And this is because there actually is a research center for um, dangerous viruses in the province of Wuhan in, in China. 
And so people are saying, oh, well, this must have been something that was either deliberately or accidentally released from this from this virus research facility. Right. And, well, we know that that's not true because, we ha- again, we have its genome. We have the genome of the virus. And we can look at it and we can see its relationship, um, its evolutionary relationship to all the other coronaviruses that we've known about for the better part of a century, since the 1950s. And we can also see very easily that it is missing the genetic markers that would need to be there, that would necessarily exist if any genetic engineering had been involved in its creation. And it's simply not. You know, we, we, we do know the history of it, how it came from uh, animals that were sold in, in wet markets in China. Um, it, it jumped from bats who bit these animals, who then became infected, and then people started eating these animals and that's basically how it got into the human population. And this is not a conjecture or a guess. I mean, this is, this is genetic analysis. We have, we have the empirical data for this. So it's, right. it's pretty easy to disprove that it was a bioweapon or that it was engineered in any way. What about the theory, and this is probably the most, maybe the most common conspiracy theory of them all, going across COVID-19 and everything else, that this is a conspiracy among world governments to bring in some sort of new world order, or it's a mega rich people are, are behind it somehow. Do you hear that one too? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's, that's kind of always where the, the first place, anytime there's some, something new that happens it's in, the, in, the, in the world news, People go to billionaires like Bill Gates or whoever it is, and they'll find some connection between these people and whatever it is that's happening. That was kind of the, one of the early things that happened. My question is, okay, so what was the goal? You know, again, we have proof that this is a natural virus, that there was no human intervention in, involved. But setting that aside for the moment, what was the goal? If the goal is to kill a lot of people, then you would choose an effective bioweapon. Now, real bioweapons like anthrax, for example, they have a kill ratio of 50% or better. Coronavirus is way down at 2%. If it's a bioweapon, it is the absolute worst one that anyone has ever conceived. So it just, it just doesn't make sense. Would you say that these, these are the, we just got a minute left here, Brian, but when it comes to the spread of uh, conspiracy theories around the globe, I mean, this has got to be the best of times for conspiracy theorists with the wired world we live in. It is a lot of it, you know, going back to the Black Death, you say conspiracy theories have been around for a long time, but man, oh man, there's never been a better time to spread them around the world with the uh, online and the internet. That is true. And, and, And a lot of my colleagues will agree with you that that conspiracy theories, that misinformation is going to spread easier than information uh, these days. I don't, I don't agree. I think that a rising tide raises all boats equally. And just as much as um, the Internet makes it easy to spread misinformation, it makes it equally easy to spread good information. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I look back a thousand years ago, uh, 500 years ago, at the, at the Black Death and these other pandemics throughout history, and I see that those conspiracy theories and really, they're believed in about the same proportions as the ones that we have today. Okay. I think it's just part of human nature, always has been, always will be. Brian, where can people find your podcast? Come to Skeptoid.com or search for Skeptoid wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is uh, it's a must-listen at a minimum. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, sir. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith. Let's check in with CKNW contributor Claire Allen. Now, hi, Claire. Hey, Mike. So let's talk so, about the, go ahead, Claire. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the uh, post-pandemic city, sort of looking at Vancouver as a model of what this city will look like post uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, this current pandemic is rapidly changing the way that we live and the way that we work, Mike. I know you are, well, you're used to working sort of remotely at the legislature, but we're working remotely. I'm here at my my house and a lot of other of our contributors are working remotely as well. And the question is, is do these changes signal long lasting impacts on the design and architecture of our cities? So for that answer, I reached out to UBC professor Patrick Condon. He is the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments at UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, and he's also the founding chair of the UBC Urban Design Program. So my first question to him was pretty basic. It was, how how will the COVID-19 pandemic impact cities? For the foreseeable future, since people are expecting it to be more than a year before we can really put this whole question to rest, possibly two or three years 
until a uh, vaccine is widely available, that social distancing will be a requirement, not an option for quite a while. So for me at the university, that means we're already anticipating distance learning as a major shift in the fall and perhaps for the whole next academic year. I think most businesses around here will be very much more inclined to allow their employees to work from home when that is possible. To the extent that that happens, it should change other things as well. For example, commuting patterns should also change uh, so that if you get 20% of people working from home all the time or all people working from home 20% of the time, that's going to radically change the demands on our, our transportation infrastructure. So that should change the way that we budget our infrastructure budgets and allow us to push money from infrastructure expenditures into public health expenditures without any major disruption into uh, government cash flows. So one thing that Professor Condon and I spoke about, which I found really interesting, is that he believes that this COVID-19 pandemic will really work to highlight our society's social inequities, especially when it comes, Mike, to the issue of housing. It seems that there's becoming a split. The lower you're paid, the more you have to actually be at work. And I think that's really a problem if this disease creates a situation where people because of housing costs, need to be further and further away from where they work. That will particularly impact people on the lower lower end of the wage spectrum. And that's why I think that cities really need to find a way where their most vital, you know, in a sense, their first responders in some sense, the people who deliver your pizza right down to the, to the people who empty your bedpans, really deserve to be able to afford a home closer to where they're forced to work. And if we don't figure out how to do that, I think the social inequities, which we're struggling with now, will only become worse and worse over the course of the next decade or two. So Professor Condon hopes that this pandemic will lead to the city of Vancouver, for example, looking at the issue of supplying non-market housing. Now, by non-market housing, Professor Condon means, you know, social housing, co-op housing for what he says would be for the middle class and non-governmental organizations which provide rental housing that's affordable because the rent would be pegged at 30 percent of your income. I have argued with increasing ferocity myself that the only solution to this problem, and I think COVID-19 makes this even more important, is that the city has to reinvigorate a strategy that it gave up on in the 1980s, and that is supplying non-market housing available to people who make average wages and below. And the, the, the paradigm for that is probably False Creek South, which was built in the 70s and 80s, which is largely still available to people making normal incomes, uh, the, the very people we're talking about. We were able to do it in the 1970s and 80s, but for some reason... Uh, we have decided we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to let the market provide all the housing, and that I don't think works. So I would be hopeful that after the dust settles on this one, we would recognize that housing is a big piece of a healthy of a healthy community. The people working in our hospitals, our first responders who take us to the hospital, on and on and on. Even the people who bring you pizza when you're in when you're in quarantine really need to have a home, a decent home in the, in the cities where they are, are called upon to do with all those vital services. And it, it, become, it becomes a general responsibility to provide that housing. They're not left at the whims and vagaries of the marketplace, which have clearly proven uh, in, incapable of, of supplying housing to that co um, so, Mike, Professor Condon also says that he believes that this COVID-19 will have us start to question uh, funding for transit development, such as the Broadway subway line. He argues that that money for the project could be used for other projects, such as providing non-market housing. Yes, we're going to see a lot more reservation among people to subjecting themselves to transit, for better or worse. I think that's a real negative. I'm sad to see that, but it's quite obvious to me with a more than more than 60% reduction in transit ridership 
in our region, you know, already that uh, our projections about increased transit ridership will really need to be reexamined. I doubt that we're going to get the, the quadrupling of demand on the Broadway corridor for this this hyper expensive Broadway subway out to UBC that justifies it. They're anticipating, you know, a, a jump from 6,000 people per direction per hour during during peak to 20,000. And I just don't see that that is reason. I, I, even prior to this, I didn't see that as a reasonable expectation. Now I think it's it's flat out absurd. Interesting stuff, Claire. Thanks for a lot for that. Thanks, Mike.